It's so good to see you. Welcome. Um, again, if you just came in, there is uh, a bottle of wine in the back. <laughs> or two. I couldn't tell if you're joking with me or not on that. <laughs> you can fit in just nicely. <laughs> Glad to have you. It is white and red back there, so um, you don't have to, but, um, but, but there it is. It's a great privilege to have Father Luke Klingstead with us. Uh, so, yes. Thank you, thank you. It's been a great week. Um, he's been ordained uh, not quite two weeks. Yeah. And um, Luke has hit the ground running very hard. I was telling some folks after the uh, children's formation, you know, I've been here almost 15 years and I was 29 when I arrived. I know. I know, right? <laughs> 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 and, and this this week has reminded me I'm not 29 at all anymore, <laughs> at all. And I was telling some folks that at Rosary, I was sitting on the front row and I just took my shoes off just to let my feet breathe. They were swollen. It was just a long day. Um, that being said, Luke is, is, a, is, a, is a fresh horse, which I'm so grateful to have in the stable because he's been such a huge help and continues to be a huge help and brings his own gifts to ministry in his own right, not just to help me, but to, to contribute to the life of the church. Uh, and that's wonderful. His great passion is uh, in ministry at this moment is teaching. And so what we envision this to look like is almost like priest and a rabbi, except we agree. <laughs> in the idea Might that- Might be less interesting. Yeah, but. in the idea that we have, um, we wanna break, um, we, wa we wanna expose scripture and and reason and tradition, which is a very classical, uh, 16th century Anglican way of viewing the world. So Richard Hooker was a priest and was very influential in the Elizabethan age. And basically, you've, you've heard of the three-legged stool, right, of scripture, tradition, and reason, which is a complete awful image of what Hooker was trying to communicate. He was not at all talking about a stool because a stool, if it has four legs or three legs, if you rem um, they're all equal, right? They have to be, or the thing will fall apart. That's not what Hooker was saying. Hooker was talking about how do we understand the world as faithful people. And he was giving not three equal components, but giving a, a process, <coughs> triage. <coughs> so the first thing we do in, in doing theology is we look at what Holy Scripture says. If Holy Scripture is plain and clear, that's your answer. Holy Scripture, however, he understood is not always plain and clear. Sometimes scripture seems to contradict itself. It seems to say one thing in one place and something else in the other. So then he said, what do reasonable people, what can reasonable people discern? Your God-given intellect, obvious, clear common sense. Does that um, resolve the issue? So in reason is not meant to be scientism or to be anti-religion, but to use your critical thinking skills and common sense, frankly. Sometimes you go through both of those. Scripture isn't clear. Reason, two reasonable people who are well-formed can come to different conclusions. So then what's next? Then the teaching, the tradition of the church, the pattern of the church prevails. So that the, the tradition of the church is the final arbiter of, of that confusion. And so again, those aren't three equal legs. Scripture is primary. Reason follows, and then tradition is the one that helps resolve it. So with that very sensible English way of understanding theology, we're going to have three components um, to help the night go by faster, so, but also to expose us to three very important things about living the Christian life. Scripture, um, tradition, and, um, and reason. And so with reason, we're going to talk about a practical, moral, ethical component to it. And ideally, all three will, will relate to one another. So that is the structure for what we have planned through, um, through December. And if it works well, and I think it will, um, I think you'll, you'll appreciate having bits and pieces from three different areas that will cover a lot. I think you'll appreciate the back and forth that we'll give. Uh, Father Luke and I have not compared notes 
So that was intentional. So I've got what I want to talk about. He has his preparation, and that will make it fresh because we're hearing each other for the first time. That was the benefit of Rabbi Mark and I when we did Priest and a Rabbi. We never knew what was going to happen. Um, and so that's what we'll do um, this evening. A couple of housekeeping things, though. One, glad you're here. Welcome. And I hope that you will continue to come if you're able spread the word. These chairs are not the maximum we're wanting to have. We just, we like to, we like to set the bar low and then be impressed when you all come. <laughs> and so that's what we've done. Um, so I hope you'll, you'll be able to join us. Hopefully the technology, I can see my EKG, yeah. my, my vocal EKG. So we'll have this online as well. Um, everything's always better in person, but this is an aid for people um, who can't attend. Um, finally, this will be in your mailbox hopefully tomorrow, and it should come with this giving envelope. <laughs> it just fell out. This is the New Parish Magazine. Um, if you aren't on the mailing list, that's fine. Let's get you on the mailing list. Um, but in the meantime, that's why I brought a bunch of extras here. So if you, uh, for instance, if you aren't officially a member, um, um, you're not on our mailing list, mm -hmm. most likely. Uh, because we like to save stamps, but we'd like to get you on the mailing list and give you one of these as well. So I'm going to put these here so I don't forget about them. But there are all kinds of things that I hope you will enjoy reading about. This is our first parish magazine in over two years um, because it takes lots of people to compile it, to fold it. And for a long time, that wasn't possible. And then, frankly, we had lots of other more pressing things to do. It takes a while to put this together. But we, we, we got it out this time. I hope you will um, read everything, lots of good articles in there, and we hope to do more in the future as, as time allows. Words of greeting from you. Everyone's met Father Luke, right? Yes. Hopefully you have. If you haven't, Father Luke. Um, been here a while, but uh, been ordained and function as the deacon and curate less than two weeks, so I am happy to be here. Um, like Father Steve said, I, I think the scripture, tradition, reason kind of lets people kind of dig in how, wherever they want. So I, I hope and trust that you will find something tonight in our discussion that hopefully leaves you walking out the door, continuing to think about it in the coming weeks. So that is always our goal is to not end the discussion at the end of our, our time together, but try to get you thinking more and more each, each day. As always, if you don't know the etiquette, if you have a question or comment, don't wait to the end. No. Chances are you'll forget your question no. or comment and we'll have moved on. So if there's something that we're not clear on, you know, excuse me, I didn't, what's that? Or, or uh, a comment that's helpful, don't, don't wait. Very informal, very informal um, as we go forth. Well, today is the Feast of St. Luke. The, nope. you've, you've passed the test. <laughs> They're just teasing you. <laughs> not quite. Next month. Thinking about St. Luke next to me, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today is the Feast of St. Matthew, who is also an evangelist and apostle. And he's going to be our, our starting point tonight. But let us open appropriately with the collect for his day. Let us pray. We thank thee, Heavenly Father, for the witness of thine apostle and evangelist Matthew to the gospel of, our, of thy Son, our Savior. And we pray that after his example, we may with ready wills and hearts obey the calling of our Lord to follow him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. With that being said, let's start with Scripture. So our... Um, if you want a Bible, there are Bibles in that bureau in the back corner there. FYI. Yes, there are. But our scripture tonight uh, is from Luke's gospel, but it, it deals with a tax collector. So if you are not aware, Matthew was a tax collector. And Father Steve, if you were at the noon mass, you've kind of heard this background before, but um, and I may, get, I may get some of this less detailed than you did, but the, the tax system of the time allowed for um, organization, but also a lot of corruption. So tax collectors were what were called um, public sinners. So, you know, the, the sinners that kind of wore it on their name tag. Um, if you were a tax collector, people knew what you were doing. People knew how you made a living by taking other people's money. 
And uh, taxes back then were like taxes today. They did not please everyone, and especially when you knew the person collecting them was skimming off the top. So Matthew being a tax collector is a, a good opportunity for us to look at a piece of scripture that has a prayer of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let me say this before you hop in, just real quick. This is, I think, helpful. Why were tax collectors hated? No one loves the IRS, but we recognize they have a legitimate role. Mm -hmm. In the Roman Empire, how they would collect taxes would be this way. Richard Graves is a publicani. He is the, he is the, um, the public servant. The empire was so large and growing so quickly that the government itself couldn't do all of the public works. So they would contract private enterprise to do the public works, building public buildings, doing public services like we have in various parts today. Most of you get your most important mail from Amazon and not the United States Postal Service, right? That's an example of a private group doing a public service, or as, we, as I said at the noon mass today in North Carolina, to get your tag for your car, you go to a private company and not the government building. What they would do is they would offer up in geographic areas that were taxed to be collected, they would, they would bid it out. And obviously, um, the, the, the number one bid would go to who would ever would generate the most income for, for the empire. So you would have people bidding. The problem is you would pay that amount up front, which is why the, the people who were doing the bids aren't going to throw out crazy numbers because they're responsible for that number. So if the tax for Winston-Salem was going to be $1 million, I would pay that, or Richard would pay that, up front. And that is a loan to the empire. And then now Richard's job for the next year is to go collect it, and he gets interest payments. So he pays it up front, and then he goes and collects it. So where the corruption comes from, that's the estimated tax for the coming year, a million dollars. What if land values or goods is not quite a million, and it's actually only you know, 750,000? He's still collecting a million, you see? Mm -hmm. And so that's why they were viewed a bit more uh, with a different kind of air than your, than your you know, nice neighborly IRS agent who's just trying to make a living and is not getting a commission on how much they collect. These publicani were. Yes. So our, our gospel comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So, right off the bat, let's just kind of summarize what's being said, um, and then we can start to dig deeper. It's a story I'm sure you are all familiar with, um, a Pharisee known publicly at least to be a righteous figure, um, intellectually knowing the law, understanding the commands, and outwardly, I think it is worth noting that he is outwardly doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is fasting. He is tithing. He's, he's taking off the boxes. Um, and then we get kind of this snippet of their life together in the temple coming in. How are they approaching prayer? And so you have this righteous man who everyone would kind of expect to be praying publicly in the temple. And then the publican, the tax collector, um, standing afar off. I think it's, this is what it says, beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So it's a story about self-righteousness and, and pride. Um, on face value, I think we, we get the general message pretty easily. God doesn't want us to be prideful or self-righteous. He wants us to be humble. Um, but I think if we dig a little deeper, there's actually some, some more meaning um, to be found there. Do you have anything just about the general structure of the story? Um, not yet. Keep going. Okay. Yep. So one thing I want to point out is what um, John Chrysostom actually parallels this passage with um, anytime he references it. He always parallels it with uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And um, St. John's kind of point with this story is actually less about self-righteousness, even though that is a, a warning contained in the story, and more about exalting our attitude when we approach prayer. And, and kind of his point is to encourage us that we should be approaching prayer in humility, with sorrow, with compunction, with contrition for our sins, um, because he says that's where we actually leave feeling like God has forgiven us. Um, if we approach God and ask for forgiveness, we don't actually feel like there's anything we need to be forgiven of, we don't get that, that transformation in, in prayer. Um, so St. John always says that you know, the point of this passage is an encouragement to those who f- feel like they are, they are worthless, and that is actually good news because then we leave after we've encountered God, trusting that there's nothing we've done to feel better about ourselves. So it has to be um, coming entirely from Jesus. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a very powerful text. And I heard a quote today, I can't get it right, but basically said, grace, the free, unearned, unmerited gift of God is a hard sell. Um, You can't even give it away because the people who want it are life's losers and no one wants to stand in that line. Mm -hmm. You follow that quote? Is that no one wants to identify themselves as being the loser, the, the public sinner, the tax collector. And what's remarkable in this text is the Pharisee was, his standard of righteousness was himself and everyone else. It was subjective. Because, and you know, I don't think we should go too deep into this, what this means, but the Revised Standard says, And in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Hmm. Certainly, you know, that's interesting. It could just be he's praying, but it could be he's just, his, his, um, the object of his adoration is not Almighty God, it is himself. Mm -hmm. And then he lists all the other people for which he is better. And of course, we know what a slippery slope that is. We all can come up with lists of people who are less righteous than we are and do that. But the standard of righteousness and holiness is not anyone else. This is the thing about religion that we we all get wrong, is that we're called to stay in our lane and love one another and serve one another, but our focus should be ourselves in the sense of, of, of our relationship with God and not worrying about where we are in comparison to everyone else. That's irrelevant because as, as Jesus says, um, and as God says, for instance, in, you know, in, the, in the calling of David to be king, everyone looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. What did Elizabeth I say? You know, you can't peer into people's souls. So even though outwardly we may do these things, we may be wretched and, and decayed uh, on the inside. So there's this great lack of self-awareness, which is so important in the, the spiritual life where um, we finally have that divine mirror held up and we see ourselves. And think about the great stories of people who have had transformations. I mean, the prodigal is a good parable. He came to himself. He saw himself clearly. Uh, St. Paul, uh, you know, the scales fell from his eyes. He could see himself clearly. And really the first example of this, of people who were refusing to see themselves clearly through an objective standard, Adam and Eve. Right? Remember, when was the moment they realized, oh no, what did they notice about themselves? They were naked. They saw themselves finally as they were and not as they thought they would be. And so, you know, that's really kind of the thing I think is so easy for us to set our comparison. I mean, I do this all the time. I mean, coming out of COVID, how is St. Timothy's doing compared to this church mm-hmm. or that church was going? It's really, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing because you want to try to gauge what is healthy and how are we doing. It has nothing to do with us because our situation is different, you know, and so where are we to God? Um, and so that, that divine mirror, you have, we cannot see ourselves until we peer into God and then peering into God, we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, 
ties right into where I was going to try to take the point next, that uh, we cannot see ourselves until we peer into God. Um, a lot of how pride is described in commentaries on, on the scriptures is always actually a disbelief or misbelief in God um, rather than a misbelief in yourself. Um, and, and the thought is kind of goes something like this. Uh, you are prideful because you don't actually understand how loving God is or how powerful God is. Because if you actually understood how perfect love or perfectly powerful God is, you realize the distance between yourself and God. And how can you be prideful when you, when you stare across that chasm, when you stare across that difference? Um, and that ties right into you have to see God before you can actually see yourself. Um, and if you find yourself, um, as we all do, being self-righteous, being prideful, making those comparisons, I think 99 times out of 100, it's because we've taken our attention off of God. Um, and the solution to that is not um, what, the, what the Pharisee does in looking at your own outward um, actions. It's actually what the publican does. His, his prayer is wonderfully short and sweet, but contains everything you need. He begins, God, a recognition of, of who God is and who I am not. Be merciful to me, um, begging for mercy from the only person who can give it to you, and then a sinner. A recognition of his own identity. I mean, there's, there's a Christian life. Um, recognizing the name of God, recognizing what God gives us, mercy, and then recognizing who we are without that, a sinner. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that idea of looking to God first before you actually see yourself, I think is not just in this passage, but definitely heavily in this passage. But that word mercy is one we cannot ignore, and we have to focus on this. And this is the point that I was trying to get at, at, at the, the noon homily today is it is important for us to talk about our separation from God. And, and the shorthand for that is sin, our, our, our rebellion and disobedience. And we have to be honest with ourselves about our brokenness and about our failings and all of that. So we have to hold that. We, we, we can't sugarcoat it. We have to just see ourselves clearly for who we are. And as, as I said earlier is, you know, the most important thing of our identity, that how people know who we are, even our phones, is our face. Yet the only person who can't see your face is the one who owns it. I have no idea what I look like in 3D. I have no idea. I'll never know. I can see pictures, and you can tell me. Um, but we have to see ourselves clearly before we can do this. But at the same time, the whole point of the gospel is not to see how separate we are from God and to stop there. That's not the gospel. So we can hold that truth here and in the same breath proclaim the boundless mercy and love and grace of Jesus Christ, which doesn't change what we've done, but we are now in Him and we now participate in His righteousness. Do you see that? The best way I've always tried to describe it to myself and to children, which is the best way to do it, I think, is, you know, if you take... I hope, hope this works for you. You take Play-Doh, you make a big ball, if you pinch some of it off and you have two spheres, you can put it back together into one and rub it a few times and you can't tell where the separation was. And when I think in that prayer that, you know, he dwells in us and we in him, I think about being so identified with him that now he is now, he covers everything that I am and I, I get lost in him in the best possible way. That doesn't change, you know, you know, my own rebellion and my own weaknesses, but now <laughs> it's not on me, it's I'm in Him. And both have to be present, because if we don't recognize our brokenness and our rebellion, then what's grace for? Why do you need a Savior? And frankly, in this day and time, that's the, what people are wrestling with, maybe not even consciously, is that I think I'm doing fine, actually, without this Savior bit. But seeing it clearly and having, you, one brings out the other. Our, our, our brokenness brings out our Savior, and then we, when we gaze in our Savior, we recognize how much we need Him. And then we give up and saying, I don't need to try to fix this anymore. I need, I need to rest in Him. It's a powerful thing. So whenever you hear us talk about sin, and we will and we have to, because that's the truth, I hope you always hear the truth about grace and love and mercy at the same time. So the publican saying, God, be merciful. It wasn't a wish. It was an act of trust. I know you'll be merciful to me because I know who I am. 
a center. This is, I hope you can see this above me, and I'll, I'll bring it down if I have to. This is um, um, a print on canvas that I bought on Etsy. I think the week Russia invaded Ukraine. And I have followed this artist for some time, um, but window shopped online, never bought anything. And I think I only paid 60 bucks, it's not expensive. But this is an artist in Ukraine. Uh, and this is of the publican and Pharisee. And so the Pharisee is the one standing straight up, proud, like, a, like an Oscar statue, right? I want to thank the Academy for all my tithing, <laughs> for all my righteousness. And I'm sorry that all the other well-deserving nominees mm -hmm. didn't quite get this award, but thank you very much. And, and then Chris there, Rock comes up and slaps. And, exactly. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit sometimes, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And, then you've, and then you've got the publican who is just in the fetal position recognizing the truth, right? And whenever we read these parables, parables are an invitation to put yourself in the story. Every time I read the publican and the Pharisee, without fail, I'm always the Pharisee. Every single time. And the invitation is, live into that. He is, his, his, his head is in his hands, but it's not without hope. It's a dose of reality, right? And just a side note, this wonderful artist, her name is Ivanka, uh, when I bought it, she sent me this very nice email saying, we're having a little bit of trouble at the moment. <laughs> I promise you'll get it, but it may be delayed a few weeks. You know, and I thought that was, that's my favorite part of the story because here's a person who is, you know, country's being invaded, but with hope. We're going to be fine. <laughs> a little inconvenienced at the moment, but it'll be in the post before long. So I have a question. One of the readings this Sunday um, is about the um, story between uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Mm -hmm. And... They both... Different Lazarus, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yep. But the rich man, when he goes to hell, um, still doesn't, uh, and maybe you can help me with this, still doesn't ask for, just still doesn't admit why he's there, why, well, about his life. And it kind of leaves me dangling. I, I'm, I'm pretty set on Lazarus, you know, he didn't have any money he laid out there and the dogs licked his sores and he had nothing to eat he was very humble so it's kind of like the rich man was very righteous and Lazarus was righteous in his own way but I didn't at the end I didn't I don't know what happened to the rich man so the rich man's in hell he's in Hades and so the rich man asked for Lazarus to to dip his you know finger so, into yes, the water so and, but, and then and then Lazarus says I'm sorry but there's a great chasm between yeah, us yeah. Yeah. And so he can't do anything. And so then now there's a little bit of, a, of altruism in the rich man. He says, it's too late for me. But I think, I think it's his brothers or whomever. Yeah, yeah. He says, he says brothers. yeah, brothers, you know, go, go talk to them. And so what, what, what's the message? The message is, uh, the message to us is, you've already been told what's up, yeah. but you didn't listen. Uh, and, and so the mm -hmm. idea is you, you can't keep upping the, the ante of your, of your messenger because we've sent every messenger there is. Yes. So guys, so pay attention to the prophets and, and, the, and the law and this humble servant, this humble man named Jesus who's t telling you this now. Um, you know, the message has already been given. It's been clear. You know, it's like the, the, great, the great joke you've all told about the man hanging on the cliff who's asking God for help, and here comes the, you know, the hot air balloon and the helicopter and everything, the rope, and he says, no, I'm waiting on God to save me. And he says, we're crying out loud. When he goes to heaven, I sent you a, you know, a, a balloon and a rope and a helicopter. What were you looking for, right? Those are the messengers. So it's the idea for us is that if we're looking for that great sign in the sky that we need to come back to faith and live a life of virtue and righteousness, it's been given. Open your eyes. It's right there screaming at us um, um, constantly. There's a, real quick, and, we, and I think we'll actually get to this at the uh, reason section, but there's a wonderful interpretation of that, that he's asking, you know, Abraham and basically to send the prophets um, as almost resurrected forms to his brothers. And, and they basically say that still won't convince them because it's not actually a lack of belief in the events of the prophets, it's a lack of belief about yourself. And uh, there's a, 
really wonderful interpretation that you know basically acknowledges he, he wasn't able to see Jesus in the poor man begging. If you can't do that, you know, you've lost the hope because you're, you're shutting yourself off to Jesus. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the play between this, this beggar and this rich man. He wasn't able to see Jesus in the beggar. And if you aren't able to do that, if you're not able to see Jesus in the least of these, you're not going to see him in the prophets. Um, but we might actually get to that. But to keep us on time, um, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before we do that, though, just a prime example of how that happens in the modern time is um, someone in my office, I'm paraphrasing, um, was having a real hard time. and was basically saying, I don't feel like God understands my pain. And I pointed to Jesus on the cross and said, for crying out loud, Mm-hmm. What more do you want? Yeah. And when people say, where is God in, in, in the midst of all this? What more do you want? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else he could do to demonstrate his love in the depths of where he's willing to go and where he has gone to absorb the world's pain and evil. And that's why, and friends, that's why that image needs to always be present to us. And I think that when we, when we sanitize the cross, then we start asking, where is God? Mm-hmm. And when we refuse to sanitize the cross, we connect better that he, he came to pain and suffering. He understands my pain and suffering, right? Um, I remember being in, in, in a church one New Year's Day, and I don't remember what the priest said, and it, but all I remember him saying is, he pointed to this huge, a big Roman Catholic basilica. He says, what more do you need to see to hear that he loves you? What more? Suffered for us, because he loves us. Sorry. No, that's, that's a great kind of conclusion to this scripture point. Um, and as we move to tradition, we're going to talk about the Jesus prayer, which kind of comes from this. But I want to close with just a two-sentence quote from St. Peter of Damascus. And I think we always talk about sin and, and suffering and have mercy on me and I'm, I feel conviction for my sin. There's, there's always a hesitancy to say, ah, I don't know if I want to focus on the sin. I want to focus on the grace. Um, And I think people say that because they're worried that I think if I focus on the sin, I'm just going to despair. Um, And St. Peter of Damascus has a a wonderful quote, kind of going back to what you said, you can't just stop at the sin. I mean, inherent is that, in that is the salvation. And he says, even if you are not as you should be, referring to this publican, you should not despair. It is bad enough that you have sinned. Why, in addition, do you wrong God by regarding him in your ignorance as powerless? Is he who for your sake created the great universe that you behold incapable of saving your own soul? When we talk about sin, despair is not the, not the end of the story. Um, if we regard God as powerless and we sin against him, we know he's powerful. We know he created the universe. He can take care of our own soul. He, he upholds the whole universe. Um, so with that, let's, let's move on to tradition. Um, and we're going to spend some time talking about the Jesus prayer, which kind of comes from the, the publican's prayer. And if you don't know the Jesus prayer, it's incredibly simple. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's it. And this is a prayer that has been uh, routine, been a, been a habit for thousands of years. I mean, I, I think some of the earliest records we have are, are from some of the Eastern Church Fathers, and I mean, probably older than some of the books we have um, records of, I believe. But it is a, a form of prayer that is meant to be repeated over and over and over. Um, and part of the power of it is its habitual repetition. Um, it, it, as we said, the publican's prayer kind of mirrors this um, with, a, with a couple word difference, but that kind of contains the whole message of salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, a recognition of the, the name of Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, that's it. I mean, Psalm 51 says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we approach God with a recognition of our own sin, he will save us. And repeating that is kind of the whole point of the prayer. It is meant to be repeated throughout the day. Um, and I think some of the recommendations for it say, start with 15 minutes of just repetition, build up to 30, and then you'll arrive at the point where you pray without ceasing. And it's just kind of the, the soundtrack in the back of your head throughout the whole day. Um, and that is obviously the goal, one that, as far as I know, none of us have arrived at yet. But if you have, I would like to compare some notes on what your practices are. But it is a, it's a wonderful prayer. And I know you have a whole book talking about um, some of the history of this prayer. Yeah, so uh, the, um, 
Bishop Callistus Ware, who just died about three weeks ago, is a very, very influential English uh, Greek Orthodox bishop. He tells the story of Thomas Carlyle, who was a Victorian Scottish essayist, was uh, as a little boy came home from church and just complaining to his mom. These sermons were so long. He says, if I ever become a minister, I'm going to get up in the pulpit and I'm going to say, good people, you know what to do. Just go do it. <laughs> his mom said, I, Thomas, but will you tell them how? And so I think that is, as preachers, some of the things that we struggle. We're very good about talking about what needs to be done, what should be done, but the how is not always um, so, so easy. And even maybe, uh, we, we haven't talked about this, but I remember my own uh, theological exploration in high school of being around more evangelical churches. It was always, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. That I understood, but then what? Mm -hmm. What's next? So this is coming from a story, and this it's a very thin volume, and actually this, it's thinner than this. This is an annotated version which has the text on one page and a commentary on the other page of an anonymous work of 19th century Russian literature called The Way of a Pilgrim. You can find the PDF, I'm sure, online, uh, but then our good friend Amazon or Bookmarks or wherever will be happy to get it for you. And it's this great story of this Russian peasant um, who went to church one day and heard the epistle from St. Paul, which where he heard the lesson that we should pray without ceasing. He thought, I hear that. How does one do that? I mean, how do you pray without ceasing? So for one year, he goes around to monastery, monastery, parish church, parish church, holy person, holy person, asking, how do I do that? And they all said, prayer is good, prayer is laudable, prayer is, prayer is, one said that prayer is uh, the mother, and if you cling to the mother, she'll give you children. So if you, you know, the children being the fruit of the spiritual life, but no one could say how you do that. And so he finally went to this one um, starets, this one um, mystic in the Orthodox tradition, and Orthodox uh, literature is a fascinating world, and this book is a really accessible book. I do commend it to you, Way of a Pilgrim, author unknown, anonymous. But the Starrets said, the way to pray without ceasing is the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it comes in various different versions. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, have mercy on us, a sinner. But the Starrets taught this man to pattern his breathing his heartbeat even, after this prayer, so that if they were in the great, and he's very clear, he says, only, only the spiritual masters can do this, and if you try to do the whole thing, you will be, it'll be, it's harmful. You're actually opening a door to the devil because you're taking on something you can't handle. And that's a source of pride, if you think you can take on something you can't handle. He says, start slow, say it you know, 100 times a day. The idea was, basically, is that it became, it became, um, the soundtrack to our lives. We, we don't handle silence well, and we fill it with something. That's why, I remember uh, maybe three years ago, four years ago, children had those little fidget spinners everywhere. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hated them. They were everywhere in my house. <laughs> but the idea was, is that we need something tactile to, to, to occupy our mind, to keep it from wandering off, and so we can have that white noise. How many of you sleep with a noise machine or the fan on so you can sleep? I do. I have to, we have, my, listen, our house is completely dark, fan on, window unit, noise machine, it's awful. Um, with, without all that stuff, we can't be quiet. And so the idea is, if you do that, then you can contemplate something deeper. And frankly, that's what the rosary is that we did a few minutes ago, a few hours ago, is to say those prayers in a repetitive fashion, not because we think 150 Hail Marys are going to finally get God's attention, it's that once we do that, then we stop stressing about who we're ticked off at today, who's hurt us, the things that we have to do, the things we haven't done. And then finally, by the 78th petition, we can be still. But we need that. And so he was teaching him to fill his entire day, his entire waking hours, in that default moment of prayer. So here's an example, and I'll, and I'll quit. When we sit still... When we sit still at home, we have nothing to do. Honestly, what do most people do to, to fill that space? Their phone. Their phone. Yeah. 
They scroll. <laughs> right? That's what we do. I do it. What he's saying is, instead of scrolling, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's a great spiritual tradition to do that. What I have found, and when you read your, your rubrics magazine, parish magazine, you'll see me when I say this, those prayers for me are like the sieve that all of my nastiness just filter down. And then at the end, it's something a little more pure. It's not perfect, but it's certainly distilled from the nastiness that was up here and all that heavy sediment that I shouldn't be carrying around is now collected in that prayer. And then I have something that is much more healthy for me. And so there's a lot of great questions that are contemporary to 2022 that were written in you know, the countryside in Russia in, in the, in the um, 19th century. Nothing new is under the sun, Ecclesiastes said. It's worth a read. It's a powerful tradition, but also speaks to the idea of, of sort of formal repetitive prayer, not to do what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, like the hypocrites do of heaping up prayers to, pr mm -hmm. that's not what he's talking about. We're not changing God by our number of prayers. We're changing ourselves by being quiet and by being quiet by actually mentally speaking and praying. A couple, a couple um, points that don't really have anything to do with what you just said. Um, just to kind of transition our, our attention a little bit, but the, the, the actual prayer itself, um, I think there's a couple points to be made here. And, and one is immediately it, it forces you to say the name of Jesus. Um, and that's something that we say countless, countless times throughout the day, hopefully. But um, getting it just constantly on, on the tip of your tongue is actually does more than you actually think it is doing. Um, simply saying the name of Jesus. We read in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, saying the name of Jesus, uh, we, we see throughout the whole scriptures, throughout all of church tradition, there's, there's something special there. Not that it's, you know, a, a magical, you know, gives you tingling sensation on your tongue, but that it it's it holy. Is, it is holy, yeah. Which is why we take off our hats uh, if you see us do that. That's the point I was about to say. Yeah, sorry, these, yeah. No, yeah. these connections in our, in our liturgy, we, we almost try to force the habit. Um, if you're, when we're praying, you'll see us take off our beretta or we'll, we'll bow our heads slightly, kind of trying to recognize that we just said a holy name. Let's, let's form our habits around that. And I think if you learn how to habitually pray the Jesus prayer, um, that name is constantly in your head. And when you hear it used in a blasphemous way or, you know, very casually, it, it catches you off guard because it's so connected to your inner life of prayer. Um, and so even in our tradition, all the, all the little rituals we have associated with it are trying to get us basically back to what this Jesus prayer is trying to do, to make those habits so that our, our mind and our attention is almost formed in that repetition. Um, if you're playing at home or at church, which is where you should be playing, and you want to see us during a reading, yeah. is that we take, the, we take our beretta off and touch our knee and put it back on. After the third time, we let it rest on our knee. To keep us from doing this yes. over and over. <laughs> so if Father Luke were generous, he would get up in the sermon and say, Jesus, 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 and then get into the sermon. And that way, you know, you keep messing with it the whole time. But it also, it also makes me and him uh -huh. listen to the sermon. You know, because we were listening to the holy name. So What's it's, the significance of tapping your knee? It's just taking just it taking off. Taking your hand off. Yeah. 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 So if you think about, I mean, if you, if you say to yourself, that sounds really, really stupid. Well, okay. But how many people lined the street as Queen Elizabeth went to, from London to Windsor and people were bowing and curtsying to a dead body? That's completely natural. This is the name of our Savior. And we're just doing a, a moment of respect saying that this name is not one that we take for granted. We're not taking the name in vain. And that outward sign of respect communicates something to you and to me and to everybody mm -hmm. that we're not just throwing that name around. And so it's not meant to be extra or precious, but we do, you know, there was once upon a time you would doff your hat when you would pass a lady on the street, whatever. Well, this is Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Right? Not the Queen of England. She's like you and me. He's not. And there's something about these uh, habits of prayer that 
take us further than any intellectual facts will ever take us. Um, I forget which saint said it, but he basically said, uh, intellectual knowledge about God without ascetic practices are basically a tool of the devil. Um, basically, the more facts in our head we get about God, if we are not filtering those through these ascetic practices, these acts of kind of self-denial. Define asceticism for yes, us. Yes, uh, self-denial. Um, basically, instead of scrolling on your phone, you're, you're forcing your attention to the Jesus prayer. Um, it is removing something that might be a bad habit or that might be a distraction from Jesus Christ and His mercy, and you are forcing yourself to, to do that. Fasting is an example of asceticism, um, a temporary kind of removal of this thing that, that can be a distraction at times. Asceticism, I heard described, is spiritual athleticism. Yeah. Whatever you need to do to work your muscles to do that is, is not, not aesthetic, like beautiful, ascetic, A-S-C, yes. different word. Yes, yeah, helpful uh, <coughs> point of departure. But yeah, these, these habits of prayer are kind of what make the facts worth knowing. Um, what makes you know, the scripture worth reading or, or when we are able to connect it to our inner life of prayer. That, that is all I have about the Jesus prayer. Um, we can move on to reason. So reason, uh, Matthew was a tax collector. The, the uh, Pharisee sits there and talks about tithing and, and fasting. So and this is what I preached on last Sunday. So you know we've got 10 minutes left. Um, I could talk for two hours about this, but take a moment and, and let's talk a little bit about um, money and stewardship and tithing in general. Um, and I will be open to questions, but the, there's a couple main points I want to make. And one um, is just to kind of reiterate, this is what I just did with the children an hour ago too, that the virtues help us regulate things in our lives. So God has, you know, given us societies and, and money is part of a society. Virtues help us regulate our relationship with money. Um, we, so what that means is that if you have a, a financial issue and you are struggling with your relationship with money, with anxiety or, or stress or um, greed, and you just find yourself always wanting more, that is a theological issue. Um, that is a virtue issue, that the vices are coming to dominate your relationship more than the virtues. Um, I'm trying to think which, which direction do I want to go with this, um, but I'll kind of make, make this point, and I'm going to try to keep myself on track by looking at um, some notes I write down. But before you know, any, any real discussion about money, I think the first thing worth asking is, what is it for? What is the point of money? Um, in, my, in my homily, I said that there, money is not a neutral sphere, meaning there is a Christian use of money, and there is a secular or, or pagan use of money. Um, in the same way that we would, you know, say that there are, are Christian ways to pray and, and secular ways to, to pray or worship. Um, what that means is that when you have $10, if you are a Christian, there is a sense of obligation that you are using that differently than you would if you were not a Christian. And that's because of your virtues. So one of the things that almost every single church father always says is money has a purpose. Um, a, a funny little way of saying it, it is it is potential in your pocket. Um, if you are accumulating it, and this is something that we are all guilty of, and obviously gets um, complicated in modern society when everything is you know, digital and, and virtual and it's not something you carry around, but it has a purpose. If you are accumulating it just to have more money and to feel more secure, but you are not actively saving it to use it for a, a good reason, that is, that is a avarice, um, covetousness, just wanting more and more and more and wanting to accumulate for accumulation's sake. Um, and obviously that, you know, when you think about $10 versus how much it, you know, costs to send a kid to college or buy a house, um, these, these, you know, take 10, 15 years to develop sometimes. And sometimes we get so far removed from this, you know, understanding of money is to be used for something good that um, we just forget about it entirely. But I think that's always a helpful reminder for us that money has a purpose. Um, and, and the good news is it is meant to be spent. Um, it is meant to be enjoyed. Uh, the Christian life is a fulfilled life, obviously spent on things worthwhile, but it is not to sit in your, in your barns. I mean, the rich man that we see, you know, Jesus tell a parable about who has the excess corn, and he says, oh, great, I'll build a bigger barn. And what's he, what's he say? Now I don't have to worry. Now I can kick back and, and drink and enjoy the rest of my life. And then what happens to him that night? 
He dies. And Jesus says, your soul is being demanded of you. That, that excess you had had a reason. It had potential. It was supposed to be used for something good. And what did you do? You put it over in the corner and said, hey, it gives me this sense of security. And that's kind of the heart of the issue is where is our sense of security located? Is it in accumulation of material goods? Is it, you know, how much is going to be enough for us to actually feel safe? Or is our sense of security in Jesus Christ and his power over death and over suffering? You preached this Sunday. This is a bad movie. I don't recommend watching it. But, but, but I, I went and watched um, the sequel to Michael Douglas's Wall Street, which is a good movie. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. So the sequel is horrible. Don't go watch it. What's the sequel? It's called Wall Street 2. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but, but, my, but if Michael Douglas comes out of jail, and this is, this is after sort of the, the, the bank, um, you know, the, the, the uh, what do we call the, the bailouts of the banks and all mm -hmm. that. And so Shia La LaBeouf, whatever his name is, is, is in there. And Josh Brolin, uh, who's a very good actor, I, mean, I remember him from being Brandon in Goonies, to, to give you some context, is the new sort of Wall Street tycoon. And so Sh Sh Shia is the, is, the, is the new up and coming trader who's, who's getting into this money. And he asked Josh Brolin, who is like the top dog on the Wall Street, he says, how much What's your number? He says, everyone has a number. You may have your number. He goes, what's your number that once you get, you'll walk away? And this is what he said, more. Yep. I thought that was is yeah. what you said. He didn't have a number, it's just more. Mm -hmm. It never ends. There's, there's not a number yeah. to make us feel completely secure, right? Yeah, and it's because we, it is that pursuit that actually is us chasing our security, and we're never going to find it. So it's it's always going to be, going to be more. Um, another point on how we spend money that I, I read about today, and I thought it was uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating, is uh, if you've read Dante's Inferno. Um, if you don't know, it is it is Dante, you know, writing about this this. Um, uh, I'm blanking on my word, but he he is walking down the circles of hell with the poet Virgil. Um, and on each, you know, circle or each level, there are sinners and their punishment kind of fits their crime. So, so the gluttons, uh, I believe, are forced to just eat, eat, eat until they're actually like dying and, and bursting open from the inside because that was their sin in life was, was gluttony. And he gets to one of the levels and there are two um, sinners of money, uh, of financial sinners. And it is the avarice and the prodigals, the prodigality. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, prodigal son, prodigality. Uh, but avarice or covetousness and prodigality sit there and their punishment is actually, um, comes from the, the Greek, uh, he was not a god, but the Greek myth of, of Sisyphus who, who you know, tricks death and his punishment is to roll that boulder up the hill and it falls down and he does it again. That's his you know, kind of eternal cycle. But the avarice and the, and the prodigals are screaming at each other and if you aren't aware, avarice or covetousness is um, greed or lust for material gain. Think of it as your, your closed fist simply wanting more. Your answer is always more. You're not actually spending it and uh, it, the, one of the extreme forms it takes, and it's actually a, a virtue in a lot of our societies, is frugality. You never want to spend it because simply having it is what gives you that happiness. And then there's the prodigals who spend freely without any regard to what they're spending it on. So they have open fists, but almost in an extreme way. Whatever crosses their mind, that's where they spend their money on. And um, as someone probably more prone to avarice, I, th I always think it's funny how much we mirror that. In Dante's Inferno, they're screaming at each other because they think they're better than the other one. But you just spend your money, you know, freely. You're not thinking about it. And the other one says, oh, look at you, your closed fists, you know, and they're both doing the same punishment. Um, and that is supposed to be the the uh, vice of generosity or, or almsgiving. But, but the interesting point is um, apparently Thomas Aquinas writes a, a chapter on this and he says prodigality is better. Um, and he says at least prodigality gets at what money is. It is for spending, not hoarding, even if it is not oriented towards something good. So what he says is if you're spending it, at least you're spending it, which is the whole point of money. The hoarders aren't even using it for its correct use. Um, they're both wrong, and, and that's kind of his point, is that they're both the, the vices of almsgiving and generosity. But it was a, a really interesting point that I've never actually heard avarice and prodigality kind of 
mirror two sides of the same yeah, coin. Yeah, yeah, two sides of the same coin. Um, both uh, vices to almsgiving or liberality, I think is how, how Dante puts it. Um, but I, I think we can, we can, I'll close with this. Um, the end goal is, is always to try to separate yourself from money, um, not to necessarily you know, live with, with zero dollars in your bank account and, and not send your kids to college. But, but the end goal for all of us is to separate us um, from that, from money, to where it does not have any power over us, to where we view it simply as, as a tool, as, as we would a coffee maker. We want a cup of coffee, we hit the buttons on the coffee maker and it gives us coffee. We want to do something good, money is how we are able to do that. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of questions. We've got a couple minutes left, um, but I'll, I'll close there, let you say anything you want to, and we can open it for questions. I mean, I'm wondering, we have a finance meeting after this, and I wonder if maybe the way to think about it in our own lives is, is um, you know, if you look at a church, and it depends on the scale, but I don't think the scale really matters as long as the, as the point is the same. And there are lots of churches that are examples of, of really not modeling this. But, you know, as a church of a... Of a, of a I don't know what a good sized church is anymore. What's that mean? Especially post COVID, right? I'm not sure what yeah. that means. I'm not sure it has any meaning, but a church like ours that has uh, a decent membership and uh, expenses of, you know, $800,000, we need that kind of money. That's a lot. Of, that's an awful lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. The goal, I think, for the finance and the vestry is not how much do we have, but what can we do with that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's the whole point of a budget. I mean, so for us in a budget, um, this is not a, I'm not trying to sell you on a budget. I'm just saying that, that in our conversations, we never, I mean, we're glad to have a surplus to carry over to the next year in case there's a lean time, but we never, we never budget to make profit. That's right. I mean, the, the, the goal is to, to come out at the end. Yep. I mean, we need to pay our people, pay our bills, do all that, be smart. And we got smart people and we're, we, we are faithful, but we're not reckless. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a distinction I think. Sometimes that line is very very delicate to tease out because what what may be faithful to some person may be reckless to somebody right. else. But I think histor- historically we're, we're being faithful. We're trusting that the Lord will bless what we want to do with it. And over 72 years that has come to pass. And so I think in our own lives, you got to send your kids to college. You got to mm-hmm. pay your bills. You got to mm-hmm. do that. But the goal of your of your of your of your money is what am I doing with this? Yeah. And not how how big can it get just so that I win. Yeah. I think that's kind of what happens, right? I win. But what what have you won? You know? I don't know. From a finance perspective, being on finance, every penny that we spend at St. Timothy's goes towards edifying God in some manner. I agree, and one of the things I'm very proud of, and listen, I, I've never had, I've never been in a church, well, that's not, that's not true, but at St. Timothy's, we've always had to um, beg for everything. <laughs> I think that's the Lord's gift to me, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, you know, my, my, you've heard me tell this story, my father had this dream of a business, and he, he, he started the business, and was like, like 75% of all small businesses was bankrupt within five years. And so the reason why I went into ministry at 19 was to get off their balance sheet, right? So I was living in a parsonage serving a church with my own income to pay my own bills so mom and dad could take care of their own mess, not to worry about me. And so I've always, I've never, I've always had a funny relationship with money, not wanting it to have that kind of power. Because I remember my father, a very, you know, proud man, you know, putting on the, the, the tie and the coat and going to the bank. And I remember being at dinner and the phone ringing and everyone bowing their heads because they knew it was a bill collector. It was awful, awful. And I never, ever, ever, um, you know, wanted to live that. Um, and so I know that for here, um, I will say I'm very proud in the, in the holiest sense of that word that there is no fat and in, in, in what we do, and again, I'm not trying to sell you. I mean, you can make your own determination. But my conscience, when I go to bed, there's no fat. I mean, it is, it is pure. We, we do, I would argue, we do more with what we have. Not that it's a comparison, publican. Here I am, Amy Pharisee. <laughs> not that it's a comparison, Lord. We're not like these other churches who are, you know. 
Even though I am. Yeah. Even though I am. <laughs> even though I am. I will beat my chest, but I, I mean, yeah, I agree with Dwayne 100%. Everything is adoration, formation, transformation. But when I get cocky, the Lord, like the market, corrects. That's right. <laughs> you think you're doing good now, Father Steve. COVID. <laughs> right? Here's a sinkhole. Here's a sinkhole. Here's a roof. You know, whatever. Right? Will you hold faithful with changing circumstances is the message that I'm wrestling mm-hmm. with. And we're trying to model it here that in our own lives, things, you know, go this way. Uh, hold faithful. And when we die, we're not taking any of it with us. We're all going in a pine box. You know, and my father canceled his life insurance policy. Bless him. You know, why? You know, why? You know, don't, you know, don't worry about it. You, you live your life. You know, do that. Let me close with a quote from Gregory Nansen. Um, and this kind of brings us back full circle to these comparisons we make with everyone. Seek to distinguish yourself from others only by your generosity. Be like gods for the poor, imitating God's mercy. Humanity has nothing so much in common with God as the ability to do good. And I think that really gets at the heart of it. Um, God blesses us so that we can turn around and bless others. Questions? Yeah, questions, comments. Richard, yeah. I read somewhere where um, when Mother Teresa died, we all heard the story she died with a pair of sandals and a pair of glasses, and that's all she had. There were millions of dollars in the Catholic bank that were sent there on her behalf. She didn't really even know how much was there because she didn't care. And she died, in my mind, as one of the richest people I've ever known. Completely. There, this, is, this is not the same, but I had to tell Luke, 10 years old, we're having a tight, a tight not week. Not this one. I said, I said, bro, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't get that. He goes, don't you get the offering plates every week? Yeah. <laughs> I said, bruh, I do not. You know, the church does. That's not how that works. But you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, Mother Teresa, absolutely. If you, if you want to see whole something, world is shattered now. Google on Google Images Mother Teresa's feet. Mm-hmm. Mangled mess of feet. Um, but she was Eric. We'll have Eric Grubb here one day. Remember Eric Grubb, Father yeah. Grubb. Yeah. Eric Grubb spent uh, a summer in Calcutta oh, cool. with the missionaries of charity. Um, Mother Teresa had died at that point. She died um, right with Princess Diana in 1997, mm-hmm. if you remember. Uh, but but Father Eric spent a summer. Uh, they interestingly asked. He went to Israel with us, and I remember sitting with Eric. He's talking about is- India, and I've heard India is a, is a place that every Westerner ought to go because mm-hmm. it's so different. I said, how was the food? Did you handle the food okay? He says, the food was great. The only time I ever got sick is we ordered Domino's. <laughs> and then we all got sick. I don't know why. But I need to bring Eric here to talk about that. He'll be happy to do that maybe one time because he has all kinds of interesting insights into the missionaries of charity at Calcutta, Mother Teresa's um, order. Other comments, reflections, questions? So is the public and the publican the next day? It's a great question. So I don't know because, um, at least in this parable, it was a parable, it was a story. Um, you know, the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, a colleague for St. Matthew, sort of um, says that, gave praise to God who called Matthew from the receipt of custom. Mm-hmm. It, giving the, the impression, of course we know Matthew left the, the, the booth, which is more than just leaving the post, left that life and that avarice and all that. Um, yeah, I think probably the way the system was set up, there was no way to do that job without being maybe corrupt. I don't know. And maybe there's some, there's some vocations where it's very hard to do it without going all in mm-hmm. into that. So one wonders, it's a great question, one wonders in that parable if, um, or like most of us, he decides uh, that he's going to give it up and then he changes his mind the next day. And then he yeah. falls on his knees that night and says, be merciful. Sincerely, yeah. sincerely, and then is weak the next day, and then sincerely falls on his knees again, mm-hmm. and is weak the next day. You see, that's the point you need to make about grace. 
It doesn't mean you got it figured out. Because this is what I need to be very careful about this is that if we think that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, then we no longer need a savior. Mm -hmm. Right? If we can do it ourselves, we no longer need Jesus Christ because we've done it ourselves. And so maybe he said, I'm going to not do this any longer. And then he did it again. Remember that in your own habitual sin. Doesn't mean we should be happy there, but understand if you could fix it, you wouldn't need him. Right? Uh, he wasn't the one in charge of the money. Who? Matthew? That is it, yes. That is a point I think some of the uh, early Christian writers actually bring up that, that he was not put in charge of the money. Uh, Judas was. But, and we could spend, and we're not going to, but we could spend another 20 minutes talking about purpose of money. Yeah. Remember, Judas was the one that had a problem with adoration? Yeah. And, had, you know, we're go arguing over what purpose of money was. Um, very, very insightful, insightful comment. Any further questions? If not, I'll have you close us in prayer, if we may. I'll, I'll hang around for a bit after. Um, if you want to chat, you know, I'll grab a drink or What's something. next week? Next week is angels. That's right, next angels. Week is angels, Ouija boards, exorcism. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into hot topics. We'll get into the dark arts next uh, next week. Right. So uh, we won't do it, and you know we won't. You know we're not gonna. No show and tell. I will say though. I will say as a preview, the closest thing we'll ever do to to uh, to a seance is a parish zoom. <laughs> Can you hear me? Are you there? <laughs> You've seen that meme, right? <laughs> a Zoom meeting is the closest thing to a seance. So come, come next. Come back come next week. That's right. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for the gifts that you give us. As we depart tonight, I pray that we'll be convicted of our sin, and rather than falling into despair, we'll fall on our knees and cry out to you, have mercy on us. Thank you for your never-ending mercy that constantly pulls, up, pulls us up off the ground and sets us back on the right path. Thank you for the gifts that you give us. I pray that we receive them with thanksgiving and in turn turn them around to do good into the world. Be with us as we depart tonight. Keep us safe. Keep all of our families safe. And bring us closer to your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.